Nuclear fission has long been hailed as the next great energy source, capable of providing nearly limitless power without the harmful emissions and waste associated with other forms of nuclear generation, wrote economist Eli Dorado in a piece today. This week, the National Ignition Facility at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory announced that it had achieved ignition, which occurs when the energy output from plasma in a fusion reactor exceeds the energy put into the plasma. With continued investment from government and the private sector, we are likely to see many such scientific milestones reach in the next few years. Eli continues, It is important to be wary. Many of these milestones have little bearing on the commercial viability of nuclear fusion. Despite press releases, the National Ignition Facility conducts weapon tests, not clean energy research. There is no realistic path from the kind of fusion being celebrated this week to any sort of commercial project. To a lesser extent, that may also be true of progress that we're seeing in other fusion projects, even commercial ones. So, in the 1970s, many people thought we were only a few years away from fusion. But here we are today, still burning oil, gas, and coal. To explore why, I wanted to repost a fantastic episode of a podcast hosted by a friend of the show. Ben Reinhardt is the host of the Idea Machines podcast, a show that explores innovation systems from history to today. In the episode you'll be hearing after this intro, Ben interviews Stephen Dean, who is present at the creation of America's investment in fusion in the mid-1970s and has been working in the space ever since. It's a fascinating exploration of how government-funded science can fail us. Ben Reinhardt is also the creator of PARPA, a private sector DARPA aiming to unlock robust technology to open new frontiers, which you can check out at parpa.org. Enjoy the show. In this conversation, Dr. Stephen Dean and I talk about how he created the 1976 U.S. Fusion Program Plan, how it played out in the history of fusion power in the U.S., technology program planning and management more broadly, and even more things. Stephen has been working on making fusion energy a reality for more than five decades. He did research on controlled fusion reactions in the 1960s, and in the 70s, he became a director at the Atomic Energy Commission, which then became the Energy Research and Development Administration, which then became the Department of Energy. In 1979, he left government to form the consultancy Fusion Power Associates, where he still works. In 1976, he led the preparation of a report called Fusion Power by Magnetic Confinement that laid out a roadmap of the work that need, would need to be done to turn fusion from a science experiment into a functional energy source. And if I can sort of riff about this for a minute, this thing is unlike what I sort of see as modern roadmaps, it lays out not just the sort of like plan of record to getting fusion to be a, a real energy source, but lays out all the different possible scenarios in terms of funding, in terms of new technology that we can't even think of being created in a way that you can actually sort of make decisions off of it. And I think one of the most impressive things is that it has several different what it calls logics of funding, which is like different different funding levels and different funding curves. And it unfortunately accurately predicts that if you fund fusion below a certain level, even if you're funding it continually, you'll never get to an actual useful fusion source because you'll never have enough money to build these, these demonstrator missions. And so in, in a way, it sort of predicts the, the future. This, this document is super impressive. If you haven't seen it, you should absolutely check it out. There, there are links in the show notes. This, this document sort of is one of the pieces of evidence behind my hypothesis that to some extent, program design and program management for advanced technologies is a bit of a lost art. And so I wanted to, to learn more about how he 
thought about it and, and built it. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Stephen Dean. To start off, what was the context of creating the, the fusion plan? Well, I guess I would have to say that it started a few years earlier, in a sense, that in 1972, the I was in the fusion office and in the Atomic Energy Commission, and the Office of Management, Management and Budget at the White House put out instructions to, I guess, all the agencies that they should prepare an analysis of their programs under a system they called management by objectives. Mm-hmm. And this was some. This was a formalism that was had a certain amount of uh, popularity uh, at that time. And I was asked to prepare something on the fusion program as a part of the agency doing this for all of its programs. And in doing that, I looked at our program and I laid out a a map, basically, that uh, showed the different parts of the program on a map, like a road map, and uh, what the timelines might be and what the functions of those uh, facilities would be and when the decisions might be and what decisions would work into, into, into what. And that was never published in, in a report, but it, except internally, but the map itself was published and widely distributed, and I have it on my wall, <laughs> and uh, it's in my book. So that was the first, my first venture into, uh, into doing something that uh, resembled a plan. It was not a detailed plan, but it was an outline of decision points and flow. It was sort of a flow diagram, but it did connect all the different parts of the program. and It identified sub-elements, you know, not in great detail. And, and budgets were not asked for at that time. So that's how I got into this idea and a little experience in in the planning area. And then uh, a few years later, we had the gasoline crisis in the U.S. where there were long lines and we couldn't get gas and people were sitting in their cars over, <laughs> overnight. And the, uh, the White House at that time said that, you know, we had to become uh, energy independent of oil, you know, the OPEC business. Yeah. And and so Bob Hirsch, who was at that time about to transition from the director of the fusion program to an assistant administrator of ERDO, you know, in I think it was 74, late 74, 75, the, the, uh, the government decided, the Congress decided, or the administration decided to abolish the Atomic Energy Commission and transition it into something called the Energy Research and Development Administration, or ERDA. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that was to create an agency whose function was clearly for all of energy and not just for atomic energy in order to respond to the energy crisis and to get us off of the uh, dependence on foreign oil imports for mm-hmm. for vehicles and things. And so when 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 that happened... My boss, who was Bob Hirsch at the time, he became, he was actually appointed an assistant administrator of ERDA for basically all the long-range energy programs, which included fusion. And as he was in that transition, he, he came up with the idea that we should create a detailed long-range plan for the 
for the program. And he he was obviously becoming a sort of a senior manager for the many things, and he wasn't certainly going to try and do this himself. And so he and I were very close. I was a, at that point, he had three divisions in, in the fusion program, and I was the director of the largest division, which had all of the main experimental programs. And so he asked me to prepare this plan. And if you look at the plan at the very beginning, there's a, there's a, a, a chart that, that shows Bob's basically guidance, which was to note that, that there needed to be a multiplicity of pathways because uh, no one organization or, or group or division or program was in could be in full control. And that in order to have a plan that might have some hope of lasting, that you had to take into account a number of policy variables, he said, and technical variables, which meant that he said because need for the for the for fusion and the intent of the government and the funding is all in control by other people in the government, we had to have a number of plans by which the program could be conducted. Yeah. So he came up with the idea that, well, let's have five plans, which he called logics. Mm -hmm. So he basically created that framework and uh, turned it over to me <laughs> at the beginning, I guess, of 1975, I think it was, and to, to create this, this plan. Mm -hmm. So that's how it all got started. And I had been doing a number of things with the program in terms of the major experiments that were under my control as a director of the confinement systems division, magnetic confinement systems division. I was forcing all all the people that were the, whose budget I had control over to to tell me what they were doing <laughs> and uh, what they needed to do, and so on and so forth. So I had already been working on a lot of these things. In, within my area, but at that point, I took over the responsibility of creating the, the entire plan, and so I, I, I took it over, and I started, I created a, a small working group within our office, and we added uh, people that we thought were responsible that could do this for us or give us the details out in the various parts of the program, all elements of the program, and we created a team and uh, we, we launched this, and, and this was the result. Uh, we were determined to look to these five logics. They ranged from a, you know, basically a steady level of effort to a maximum level of effort. And, and, and we just started creating these things during the, that six, first six months of 1976, and, and this was the result. Nice. And did you so, – so each of the logics is – kind of a a wiggly curve D did you go in knowing what the shape of the the funding curve for each logic would be or did you just go in with the framework that there would be five logics and over the course of designing the the program you figured out what the actual shape of those curves would be well we created a definition a rough definition of what each of the logics was supposed to look like, mm -hmm. not in detail, but for example, uh, 
logic tool which says moderately expanding, but the, tech, the progress would be limited by the availability of funds. But new projects were not started unless we knew that funds would be available. And so we knew that we could not address a lot of problems in parallel. And so we had a, a general idea that this was a program that was not running at a maximum maximum feasible pace. Mm-hmm. And then the logic three, we said, well, uh, let's look at one that's a little more aggressive. And uh, we would uh, lay out in that one that as soon as these projects were scientifically justified, they would be in the plan. We would not wait till we knew that there were probably people that wanted them or money was available. But And we also said in this scenario, we would address a number of things concurrently rather than in series. So we assumed that the funding was ample. We didn't have a number in mind at that point. We started laying these things out and asking people, if you had all the money you needed, what could you do? If you didn't have quite enough money, what would you do? And people started responding to us that were working on all of these subtopics. We were mostly working at the beginning, laying out what the topics were and what had to be worked on eventually to get to the end point and that these topics could proceed at different rates and with different amounts of risk depending upon the budget. So this was a sort of an iterative thing that went back and forth with the community in the sub-areas, and our team kept putting these together until they made some sense. Got it. And just to to sort of step back a second, so before you create this plan, sort of all the activities were happening already. Is that is that right? There were activities in all these areas that were go- ongoing. Yes, that's right. They were at, at relatively low level at that stage. At the, in the early 70s, the total fusion budget was $30 million. And by the mid-70s, because of the energy crisis, we were told, you know, tell us what you want. And we had raised that budget from 30 million to 300 million. So the program had been undergoing the first five, uh, uh, between 72 and 75, a very rapid expansion. And we had started a lot of new programs. And so the program had been built up quite a bit, although all of these programs, of course, because they were new, they were at still a fairly early stage of their, their development. The other thing that drove the the, the curves was the recognition that <clears throat> getting to a fusion power plant required a, a couple of uh, identifiable major s- facility steps. And these actually came from that map I, I mentioned from 72, which said that from the experiments that we wanted to do in the near term, which were to build like a physics proof of principle experiment, That had to be followed by an engineering step that was an engineering uh, test reactor, and that had to be then followed by a demonstration power plant. And that those steps were big facilities, each one much more expensive than the previous one, and making a much more definitive demonstration of fusion that was on a path. And and the the wiggly curves that you see, not the, the, the... the uh, smooth ones have these bumps on them. 
And those bumps reflect the fact that these major experiments were going to cost a lot of money, and depending on how fast you build them would would also reflect a, a different path pace to an endpoint. You know, the faster you build them, the, the faster you get there, because these major steps really drove the progress and drove the budget. Mm-hmm. And do you think that sort of... I, I guess it, it's hard to think about, but like, do you think that the plan helped anything in the sense of like, if if instead you just sort of had continued with the the program as it started, where I imagine it was like much more sort of bottom up, do you do you think that the the outcome? How, how do you think the outcome would have been different? Well. I think without the plan, I don't know what would have happened. Uh, I don't think we would have gotten the support that we got in the next few years during the 70s that we got, because the outcome of this was that uh, the plan plan was published with all of its detail and all of its budget. It was published publicly. The Office of Management and Budget tried to stop us from publishing this plan because they didn't want budgets out there that said, well, if the Congress would give you so much money, then uh, then you'd get the job done because that would tie their hands uh, because, you know, they like to be in control of how much money they're going to give to every program. And so th- they don't want the agencies to put out plans with budgets. And so we had to fight that. And uh, luckily for us, the Energy Research and Development Administration, which was fairly new and actually only lasted a couple of years before it transitioned to the Department of Energy, had a a head of it, Bob Siemens, who came from NASA. uh, And he overruled the the Office of Management and Budget. He said, I'm in charge of this and I'm putting the whole plan out. So we published it, and it got picked up over in the Congress by Congressman Mike McCormick and his staff, and they became champions for this plan. And they came up with a a legislative agenda, and they got a senator uh, from Massachusetts in the Senate to get on board. And, and by 1980, I think it was in October 1980, Congress had passed the Magnetic Fusion Engineering Act of 1980, which basically adopted our plan for getting to the end point by the year 2000. Mm-hmm. And so the result of our plan was that Congress picked it up. It passed a legislation making it national policy and it was signed by President Carter on October 7th of 1980. And we thought at that point we were in, that we had a commitment of the United States government at the presidential level to implement this, the, 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 the plan that we out for getting there by the year 2000. And so the, the problem, the only problem was that he, President Carter signed it in October and lost the election for re-election in November. And as you probably know, whenever there's a change of administration, especially if it's a change of party in here, almost everything that the previous administration has decided to do, the other, the new people want to either not do or they want to 
completely reevaluate and start over. Yeah. And so that's what that's what happened to this plan in uh, 1981. Got it. And so because as far as I can tell, we've we've sort of like the, the, the way that it's panned out is that we've we've sort of followed below logic one. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was less it less than a, less than ever getting. It's the never get there logic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's... Yeah, well, there's one, but there's one caveat to that is that in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan was opposed to all of this energy stuff until 1985 when he met with Gorbachev, and they decided to work together on fusion and build our first major step that was in our plan. We were going to build this engineering device in the 1980s, and he and Gorbachev decided, let's get together and build it together with the Europe, and this became the ITER project, which is under construction in France. So what the program really did to work around this problem of the budget being so low was to say, okay, uh, we're not on our own track, but we're on a world track, and we're all working together, and so they're building this uh, multi-tens of billions of dollars engineering test reactor, and it's taken them a long time (laughs) to get it going. But it's uh, hopefully going to be finished in a few years. It's going to turn on by hopefully 2025 of plasma. So we're way behind. But but that was the response to being on this thing was to say, we're all in this together and we don't have our own plan to get there. But the world has a plan and we'll get there together. That That's how this all evolved. Got it. And so I guess the... the if if I'm in, like understanding this correctly, the the sort of the the purpose and the value of this plan was less as a coordination mechanism for the people doing the work, and more as a sort of communication mechanism with people sort of outside the organization in terms of what the work would entail. Is that is that accurate? Well, I, I, I can tell you that when I was doing this plan and I was in a senior management position there, I had responsibility for the bulk of the program. I didn't have the basic plasma physics program in universities, and I didn't have the technology part, but I had all the major experiments in my bailiwick. And when Bob Hirsch was, I was still reporting to Bob Hirsch, and he had all the energy programs in IRTA, it, it was our intent to manage this program, to implement this plan internally. It did turn out that part of the plan, part of our implementation required us getting the money, and that all went through this energy bill in, in Congress. We thought we had the whole thing put together, that not only we did we eventually have the Congress on board, but we also had a management, and we had 80 staff in the office then, and, and uh, we were prepared to manage the program to, to implement this if we got get the money in detail. So it was both the management plan mm-hmm. for implementation within the within IRTA. But of course, the, the other thing that happened in all of this was that IRTA was abolished <laughs> and became the Department of Energy. So and I left. I left in 1979 because I thought we were about to implement this plan. And I formed Fusion Power Associates and I got a dozen electric utilities. I mean, a dozen major industries like Westinghouse and companies like that to to form this organization to bring industry in to actually bring industry into the into the implementation phase of this program plan. We were 
all set to go. And even in the early 80s, before the whole thing sort of fell apart, I had uh, a dozen electric utilities in Fusion Power Associates. And so we had both industry that wanted to do this and the electric utilities that were on board. And all we needed really was for the new Department of Energy to, to follow through in, with the management of this thing and try to get get the money. But the money never never came through. And the industries and fusion power associates in the early 80s realized that there wasn't going to be any money for industry because there wasn't any money coming through. And the electric utilities were deregulated by Ronald Reagan, and they abandoned all their R&D departments, which were the ones that were in, you know, in our organization that were interested in developing fusion. Mm-hmm. And they became taken over by business people in the utilities whose main purpose was to make money. <laughs> and they were not interested in getting involved in brand new technologies. They yeah. they are only comfortable with the technologies that they had. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess to to sort of go go back to you you mentioned earlier that this plan was sort of part of a, a bigger trend of management by objectives. Do you think that that was effective management by objectives? And and just because I I feel like sort of the the modern idea very much like rejects plans like this that like you know multi-decade technical plans are at at best foolish and at worst detrimental and so so what do you what do you think about sort of like big plans for technology projects more generally let me just say that management objectives was an omb guidance in the early 70s and it soon disappeared from the, the rubric, if you will, of the, the OMB. One of the things that happens in Washington every few years is that people change and administrations change. Whatever one group is wanting to do, it just let go by the wayside. So by the mid-70s, when the engine came about, there was, there was no management by objectives formalism still going on. In the government, basically, they start all over again with how they're going to try and do these things. And as this thing all evolved, you know, up to the present, uh, at the OMB, I don't know, but probably more than 10 years ago, 10 or 15 years ago, the OMB said to Fusion, you are guys are not an energy program anymore. You are a science program. And we are going to evaluate you and have you manage like a science program. And so they stopped even asking uh, us for goals aimed towards an energy program. They said that we should go to the scientific community, take unsolicited proposals from the community to do good science, evaluate them under peer review by other scientists, and if it was good science, we should fund them. And we should not be trying to make them into seeing, we should not evaluate these proposals as to whether or not they are getting us to an energy source. So for over a decade now, the fusion program has not had an energy source as its its goal And it hasn't been funded or evaluated within the government as an energy 
program. Now, this has all changed in the last year, mm-hmm. but up until just very recently, they're trying to put now the energy mission back into the into the mission, but it, it hasn't actually formally happened at OMB yet. Got it. And just just to, to sort of pull us back to, well, management by objectives and just more broadly having very concrete plans, do you think it was useful or do you think it was just sort of like a, a, a fad almost? Well, it's been disappointing for me personally, I can say that. <laughs> it, it, it's been disappointing that like we, we haven't actually done the plan, right? Well, it's disappointing you spend so much effort yeah. laying out how you how you would do it and how you would make decisions and you get everybody uh, that's under your purview out in the in the community of people that you're funding you get them all set up to try to achieve these things and you try to get them the money and then it all falls apart and then somebody tells you that well we don't care <laughs> because uh, we don't really think we really don't care if you ever get there <laughs> Yeah. which has been the attitude until very recently. So it's very demoralizing, you know, to everybody, except the scientific community itself is kind of uh, immune from this to some degree as long as they get funded for research. As long as the universities are getting money for basic research in this area and they're training students and these trainings and these students can get jobs either in the private sector or they start their own companies or they go to work at government laboratories. As long as that is moving along at some reasonable uh, degree of success for people getting trained and getting and doing work and publishing papers, there's a certain degree of apathy, if you will, or there are even a certain degree of, of satisfaction in the scientific community, since nobody seems to care if fusion ever goes on the grid. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I guess like counterfactually, if the money had been there, so actually w- w- one thing that I, I still do find really impressive about the plan, although it is disappointing, is that you basically predicted the future, right? Like you, you said, you said, <laughs> here's logic one. If you're below this line, fusion won't happen. And indeed, you were right. So that's, let's just say like, th- that is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm so impressed by it because it, it really did, it made a very precise prediction and that prediction came true, although it is disappointing. If you, if you could imagine that like the, say the money came through, do you think that this plan would have been useful in the sense of like, like how much confidence do you have that you sort of accounted for all the things that you would need to do over the course of, of several decades in order to to get to fusion as an energy source. Well, as it says in sort of really part of the plan, these plans are not meant to be followed blindly in their detail. Yeah. They are guidance to management, and management has to keep updating them and looking to see how they're doing and keeping an eye out for new discoveries and revising the plans in detail to see if new things uh, are emerging or some things are failing or the money is coming in in such a way that that the plan schedule has to be changed. That's why you need management structure that's uh, in place and following it, but not 
blindly following it. Yeah. So I personally believe that if the management structure that we had in the mid seventies had been maintained and, you know, right now, I think we had 80 people in the office and they were all management oriented. And right now I think they probably have about, I don't know, maybe, maybe 15 people (laughs) in the office because they're running it like a research program. Yeah. So they just taking proposals and getting them evaluating and sending out money. So they're not managing in the way that we would have managed if we had had 80 people and we'd had the divisions that we had divided up and we revised the management structure from time to time along along the way. And I know if I had been there and, and what we had in mind, we were going to transition the money starting out into industry to get these things built and to bring engineering-oriented people in more into the program because even in the mid-'70s, the program, was dominated by plasma physicists, and we were only in the process at that point of starting to bring in engineering people, but still the money was still the government's laboratories in their technology people. Like Oak Ridge has a big technology laboratory, and so there was technology programs being developed in these laboratories, and a little bit of it was going out into industries uh, as on a job basis for the labs. But we didn't have a big industry program. And, uh, you know, one of the things I did just before I left was I brought in McDonnell Douglas, <laughs> which a big aerospace company, to build an engineering center at Oak Ridge for fusion. That was sort of the last thing that was done. And, you know, when this whole thing folded in the early 80s, McDonnell Douglas basically was uh, told to shut down. And they went away. Oh wow! They were they were eventually bought out by Boeing. So we had started a transition where part of the implementation of this plan was to implement it by bringing industry in to bring that talent from. We had a bunch of people, for example, in Fusion Power Associates at the beginning, who were the architect engineers who were building nuclear power plants. (laughs) Yeah. So you know those were the people that we needed to implement the plan, but they were not quite in the program by 1980, and when the money didn't come through them, they just all disappeared from any plan that the government had, because the government in the 80s was only interested in trying to make their scientists survive. Yeah. And I guess you don't really see plans like this today, it feels like. And so I I get the sense that creating plans like this and and more generally like technology management like competent technology management is a bit of a lost art do you do you think that's true or or am i or is it it like am i am i missing something well i don't know if it's true or not across the board that they must be out there somewhere i think when you look at big construction projects The people that do those projects know how to manage, and they know how to cost things out, and they know how to, they know the importance of of uh, keeping things on a schedule, and they know it, how important it is to have pieces of the schedule coming in on the right time, timing, so that the whole project comes together, <laughs> and and we tried to do lay that out so that that could be done. Profusion, but I don't see it being done in the Department of Energy, and I don't know about any other agencies. I, I kind of have the feeling that 
maybe the Defense Department does it a little better on weapon systems and aircraft systems and fighter systems with some of the big aerospace companies. I mean, I think my observation from afar of the Department of Defense is that they, they do it the right way, but they're not on top of the costs and yeah. schedule, and they do get taken to the cleaners by these companies. But somehow or another, they do get the job done, even if it's costing more than it should and, and takes sometimes longer. taking longer. Yeah. Like, that's, that's the thing that uh, there's sort of been this, like, wider observation that since the 1970s, things just take, like, sort of complex projects like this take longer and cost, like, have, have dramatic, like, cost and time overruns. Um and, and sort of like this, there's like this trend of that happening more and more. And so, so I, I wonder if it's like sort of what it is about the world that's changed. Do, do you have any hypotheses there? Well, you know, I'm not sure if it was ever that good in the first <laughs> place ever. Because when, we, when I was there in the 70s and we were laying out our plans, we thought we knew how, how to do it and do it right. But at the same time, within the Atomic Energy Commission, there was a, a nuclear fission program called the Breeder Reactor Program, mm -hmm. and it was a mess. <laughs> and, and yet, the industries out there like Westinghouse and General Electric, they were actually building nuclear power plants in those days, and they were building nuclear reactors for submarines in those days. And so those programs were actually working, but at the department, they were working on advanced reactors and they weren't getting them done. And they eventually had to shut down the breeder reactor program because it just wasn't, just wasn't seemed to be working. So I, I'm not sure the government, at least the, the part that I knew, ever did that well. You know, when Admiral Rickover wanted to put a, a, uh, a nuclear reactor in a submarine, the Navy wanted to fire him. <laughs> the, the Department of Energy wanted him to put this program into the la their national laboratories, and he had to fight them tooth and nails through his friends in Congress to get put in charge of the program and be allowed to put this out to General Electric and Westinghouse. He had to fight them, and this was back in the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not sure that the government itself ever was very efficient at any of these things. Now, I have to say that NASA seems to have a good reputation, and I, if, if it's true, it's, I, I attribute it to the fact that President Kennedy went public and made it a national priority to get there by the end of the decade, and he demanded that they do it in a way to make it happen. And he, he had the backing of the Congress, and he completely uh, set up a whole new agency focused on just that, and they got there. Yeah. So I have to say that that was a success story, and it, it remains a success story today with the evolution of, of a commercial industry that's coming out of all of that. Oh, this is quite a few decades later, but nevertheless, they seem to have done a good job. I've never, I've, I've never been in NASA so I only can see it from afar. I'm, I'm sure there's some problems within it. But, you know, somehow or another, it proved that we could get it done. And going back further to the Manhattan Project for the atomic bomb, it was clear that when there was a commitment from uh, President Truman, I guess it was, or, or maybe, it was, maybe it was Roosevelt, to do it. And the Army set up to take charge of it. They put a general in charge of it. 
and they went to Los Alamos and they forced the Dep the, Dep the Atomic Energy Commission laboratories to to work on the problem that was at hand to get it done in a short amount of time. And when you had that kind of leadership and management, it seems like it can be done, but it all depends on management. Yeah. And uh, it's rare and, in government. And, and uh, I would say it's rare even outside of government as well. And and so so I guess the, the upshot of this for me is that, and, and correct me if this is wrong, but that you feel like it's much more about sort of the, the individuals in charge and then it is about sort of like the, the process of, of planning and road mapping out the technology. Is that? Yeah, hey, uh, absolutely. We, I can't tell you how many plans have made since the one that you were looking at. Yeah. <laughs> that have, that have gathered dust on shelves. They, the, almost every, or every other year, the program uh, launches a new plan. It finishes the plan. Everybody says whether they like it or they don't like it, and it's not implemented. And a couple of years later, they'll turn it over to the National Academies to evaluate or propose a new plan. And I can't tell you, it's countless number of plans in fusion that are gathering dust on shelves over the past, what, 40 years? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. And yeah, it, I mean, it's the managers and the people that want to implement the plans that that supervise the plan. And as long as they're there, we'll implement the plan. But as soon as they're gone, <laughs> yeah, uh, they somebody else comes in, maybe makes a new plan or makes no plans at all. You know, just tries to keep things alive. And 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 what, what do you, what would you think about? So I, I feel like the, the sort of modern ethos is that planning planning isn't that useful that you should just go and just start doing stuff so I, I guess if we if we think of like a counterfactual world where you just have a very like you, you have consistent management but they don't have a plan how do you think that would turn out well i'm, I'm not quite sure what uh, you said, but so, so, so uh, I, let me let me give you an example of this big international project, Eater in France. Yeah, it was it was it was started by Ronald Reagan in 1985, but it didn't really get launched as a serious construction project for till 2006. Wow! And it very rapidly became something that was getting behind schedule and over budget, and it was completely out of control. Until about 10 years ago, they they had a management review, and they said, we've got to get control of this project. They brought in this guy that's now the director, Bernard Bigot, and he, and he took charge of this, and now he's got the thing organized, reorganized. He's got countries from all over the world on a schedule to deliver this piece of equipment or that piece of equipment on a certain time schedule. He's got them all being delivered in a sequence and he's having them put together in a sequence. And he's got a great management plan and he's been keeping the thing on schedule now for the last five years. And I have great confidence he's gonna get the job done. But it all started with putting somebody like him in charge that knew he had to have a plan that was in detail for everybody working together. Because until he took charge, Every country that had part of the job was in control of their own piece, yeah. and there was no, there was no 
control. <laughs> if they got behind, sometimes the director in, in France didn't even know until it was too late to get it back on schedule. And, and he didn't control the money anyway. Each country controlled its own money. So, you know, I think it all comes down to management, and then the management makes the plan. Yeah. And, well, so, so, so that's, that I, I do think is worth noting in the sense that there's, there's also sort of a, a philosophy of management that says management shouldn't actually be imposing a plan on people. They should just, like, let it be very bottom-up, right? And, and just, like, instead of planning, like, you don't know what's going to happen, so you should just sort of, like, let ideas bubble up from, from the bottom and let people work on what they think is the best thing to work on. Right. Well, you, you know, managers are managers of people and they oversee people. And so in a company, there's somebody at the top and there's somebody under him. But underneath them, perhaps big companies, there's thousands of people are doing their bit. So a manager does not just say, oh, hey, we're going to get this done by tomorrow or next week. He he supervises all these people, and these people feed him up the information and help create this plan, and they all have to be on board and supervised properly all the way down the line through a, through a management chain. So it's not like one person does the whole plan by himself or with a couple of people in his office. He supervises the preparation of a plan with the community. So I had, you know, dozens of people around the country who helped prepare this plan. I, I helped them piece it together and, you know, I helped organize the structure of, of the whole thing, but it was a, it was an ongoing uh, interaction that went from bottom up and then guidance from top down. It was back and forth through the whole process. Got it. So you could almost think of the plan as a, a coordination mechanism <laughs> in a way. Absolutely, because the managers can't actually do the work. Yeah, yeah, and 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 they probably like don't. The the managers can't know enough to be able to say accurately no, but, all the no, things. No, no, the they don't. They don't know the level of detail if there's a problem, for example. Yeah. If there is a problem, they can say, okay, let's fix that problem, and they go back to the people that know about it, and they tell them, okay, you guys go out and find out how you're going to fix this problem and come back and tell me how you're going to do it. Yeah. But then the manager has to approve it. You know, if he, does, if he thinks it doesn't been done right, he will go back to them until they get it right. So. And I guess another interesting thing about the, the, the plan is that at some point, someone was willing to make a prediction like a decade or more out. And, and that's sort of an attitude. I, I see people as being very hesitant to make that predictions on that time scale. Now, do, do you feel like there's, or, or at least with that amount of, with like that amount of precision, right? Like people make very like hand wavy predictions now. Do you think like there's been some kind of attitude shift around making predictions like that? Well, it's changing in the last year or so. There's there been a lot of planning activities going on here, and you'll see some time schedules in all of these. Like right now, there's a whole bunch of little companies that are all saying that by 2030 or 2040 or 2050 and uh, so on and so forth. And there's a, a sort of a goal that's been proposed to have fusion on the grid by 2050 and in order to participate in the climate change uh, solutions. 
So there's a lot of thinking about this, and there's a lot of people putting out what they think is a reasonable time frame that is achievable. And it's interesting that these these timetables are all one, two, or three decades out, which is sort of like almost the time scale <laughs> was the time scale that we had. So it's not uncommon to think that almost anything that's technically thought to be feasible can be done in 10, 20, or 30 years, depending on how difficult it is. So it's pretty easy for people to think that something can be done in those kind of time scales and then start backfilling the details to see how it can be done and what it costs. Yeah, I think I think the, the thing that strikes me is different between the predictions that I see now and uh, what you worked on is I, I feel like the, the fusion plan was A, the, the predictions were very precise. Like it, it wasn't like, oh, we'll get this thing working by this time. It was like, okay, we need to show this experiment, this experiment, and this experiment. And then there were also like very clear sort of intermediate results and, and, and like different pathways, all of which I, I, I don't see in, in modern, modern predictions where, the, where, where it feels like it's like step one, start project, step two, question mark, question mark, question mark, step three, 30 years later, have this amazing result. And, and I feel like that's, well, in mid, that's a in, big difference. Yeah, well, and you see, our time scale to, to around the year 2000 did not come out of, you know, a whole cloth. It, it was set by the fact that we were in a physics phase and we had just uh, authorized the construction of a physics demonstration called Tokamak Fusion Test Reactor at Princeton in 1975. We had already launched construction of that. And we knew that to get to a power plant, we had to make two major steps. One was an engineering facility and next was a demonstration power plant. And the time to construct those things is the is kind of known <laughs> that it takes five years to build them and five years to run them. So that kind of for each step was a 10 year step and that gets you to a 20 year timetable. And so that really, uh, this, the time to build those two facilities and operate them set the time scale of 20 years, more or less, depending upon how, you know, give or take a few years, how fast the money came in and so on. Interesting. So, you know, we had a, a we had a reason that that 20-year time frame was sort of set, that we couldn't get there any faster because we couldn't go direct to a power plant. Right. And and I, I guess, like, so, so two questions. One is, how do you think about the difference between a engineering project and a physics project? And then... Two, like, how did you know that you couldn't go direct to a power plant? Well, if you look at all the pieces of a power plant, you'll know that there's an awful lot of stuff in there that is not needed for a physics experiment. You know, a physics experiment, you know, makes a, a fusion plasma and it has a whole bunch of diagnostics on it, and you're not sure what it's going to do, and so you... You have to allow for surprises, and then you have to do theory and computation to see if you understand what's going on. And all of that requires people who who understand physics. For a power plant, you have to actually uh, have confidence 
that the plasma that you're making is actually going to sustain fusion for a long period of time and produce heat that can then be converted into electricity. And that means that these uh, a power plant has to be doesn't have room for a lot of diagnostics to be doing experiments to try to figure out what's happening. You have to have high confidence that when it turns on, it's going to run and not have to be shut down every day or every week to be fixed. Right. So all those things require technology and engineering development where components. You know, there may be a thousand major components or hundreds, if you combine them in the right way, into a power plant that have certain functions. And each of these has to be developed by engineers as a component. It has to be run and tested for long periods of time to see if it breaks, to see how to fix it, how long does it take to fix it. All of these things have to be demonstrated before you put it all together. Otherwise, when you put it all together in the power plant, it's too late. <laughs> you can't just take the power plant apart again and start over. So the engineering and technology has a whole separate track of development that requires testing and, and the development of codes of, of, of manufacture. Materials have to have codes of how long they'll last in this environment, you know, when will they fail. There's a whole, you know, skill set called time to failure and time to repair yeah. that the engineers work with that physicists don't work with. If it breaks, it breaks. They just, you know, you know they, they, they fix it because it's a small piece, and they put a piece in. It takes them maybe a few weeks, but in a major piece of a power plant, it might take you a year to take that piece out and repair it and put a new piece in. Yeah. So, so like... And meanwhile, you're not making any money selling electricity. So yeah. elect, electric utility will not buy a, a power plant like that until someone's shown that every piece works and works all, all together and can be fixed if it breaks, in, you know, in a week. Yeah. Interesting. So, so in a sense, engineering work has a lot more to do with robustness than absolutely than physics once you know the physics it's an engineering problem to power <laughs> commercialization yeah i i think that i i guess in my mind that, that's still like it, there's still a lot of like research work to be done in engineering problems even if uh it is just an engineering problem there's a, there's a melding of physics and that's what they call applied physics and there's basic physics and so and there's technology and then there's engineering and all of these things are slightly different slants and slightly different communities but they all have and that's one of the functions of management is to on a time frame and with money to meld these things in a proper sequence to get yeah. to where you need to go yeah, that makes a that's lot of why sense. a program has. Uh, that's why a program like Fusion has to evolve from totally physicists to f mix of physicists and technology people to uh, mixtures of engineers to commercial companies that do costs and schedules and all of this stuff. This all has to be supervised uh, by management. Got it. And so, uh, sort of a nitty gritty that I'm interested in is like, how did you think about budgets and like how much things would cost? Because I, I feel like there's there's no good canonical resources about like how to think about how 
much research programs cost? Well, the way we did it was we divided it into systems and subsystems, and we went to the people that were working in each area, and we asked them to go into more depth, and that's what's in our other volumes. So we had teams of people in all these areas, and then we used, you know, people that from industry and from utilities who had done similar things. In fact, we looked at the cost of nuclear power plants. That was a big part of our of our thinking as to what we knew that these fusion plants had to compete. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know, the, these the the skill set was all out there, technologic technology-wise for the power plants, because a fusion plant is almost like a nuclear power plant, except the fuel is different in the center. I mean, it doesn't look the same, but it has all the same pieces to get the power. So there there was a lot of skills out there that we we were able to draw from, and and we did the best we could. We, you know, we can't claim that... And we put some contingencies in there, you know. We didn't let them lowball or highball us, you know, because we had they had to fit into the different logics as to how much money might be available and stuff like that. So, and, and we didn't say that this, these numbers were, were, you know, in stone, that they were, they were absolutely accurate. Yeah. And, and, and how did you think about like places where there's just like sort of deep uncertainty, like where you would need to actually, like in terms of a physics problem where you would actually need like some kind of discovery in order to get the thing work? Because it seems like there, there could be a situation where like, you know, it's like you could make that discovery next year, or you could, it could take you 10 years to, to figure it out. Well, if you look at the, say, the Logic 3 reference option on page 12 of the blue-colored volume, you will see that there are a variety of paths. The tokamak was the lead path, and we laid out a reference logic for that to get there by a certain date. But... Underneath that, there's a path for alternate concepts, mm. and there were decision points which said that, well, if these things uh, come along, and there's even one down at the bottom that says other, <laughs> things that were in very early stages of proof of principle, but we were knew that these things might come to fruition, we laid out a time frame for hoping that uh, we would fund those so that they could be evaluated. And so if those things came to fruition, then they would transition to a next step. And so that, would all, that was all sort of taken into account as to the uh, decision points as to when some of these things might, might happen. And, and, of course, if, if something really radical were to come along, along one of these other paths that's listed, I'll say you can see one. If you, I don't know if you have it in front of you, but under other, you'll see a decision point in 1985 that we're going to try to bring some of those things to a decision. Yeah. And, and if it looked like a positive one, we we would uh, proceed to what we called a prototype engineering power reactor, and so it would uh, take the place of the one up above that was called the Tokamak EPR. Mm-hmm. that uh, would have already been under construction if we kept following the tokamak path. But, it, but uh, and it might still be, but if this other one came along, we would start its own track to compete. 
1985. And then and it would pick up in its own track, and it would it would come in later. And we'd have to, at that point, if that became the, the favored path, or maybe even there'd be three paths. You know, we didn't say that there could only be one winner. Yeah. So, you know, you could eventually wind up with several. Of the earliest ones might come on around the year 2000, but some of these other ones might come on in 2005 or 2006 if they were better, and they'd be uh, options for the utilities if they were better. Got it. Yeah, this is uh, it is so cool. One of the really big takeaways that like just like keeps coming through is almost just like consistency of of management and not so much like the plan, but like of of a plan. And and I think like that's what you see not happening. And I guess uh, sort of pulling us to to today. Do, do you have a sense of which things that are happening in fusion now that you think are most exciting? Well, you know, I don't want to get out on a limb to pick winners and losers because Fusion Power Associates really is a home for all of these people. Mm -hmm. And I encourage them all. And there are people that we will not let into Fusion Power Associates that are out there because they're so almost crazy. (laughs) And their claims are almost crazy that I wouldn't want to be associated with them. They are few and far between, fortunately. Most of the alternates that are out there in these little companies, they've been formed by good fusion people who have, who have uh, fallen on bad times because the government started funding all their money into tokamaks and stopped funding their alternate ideas. And so these people branched out and got support on their own. And I know some of these people, and they're good people, and their ideas need to deserve to be pursued. But the truth is that most all of these are at what we used to call the proof of principle stage on their physics. They yeah. are not fully thought through power plants, and their physics is not fully developed, or at least not even f- far enough along to develop to know how probable their success is. Uh, they should be pursued, and there be room in the program for these because improvements always come along in any tech- technology. So the first thing that comes out is not going to be the best thing 20 years after it. So uh, I encourage all these things if they're credible people. And, uh, you know, right now there are a couple of things in the tokamak area. You know, the tokamak main line is the conventional tokamak that is represented by ITER. Mm -hmm. But there are variations. There's one in Commonwealth Fusion Systems that spun out of MIT that's almost the exact same a concept is the mainline tokamak, except they're using high-field new superconductors, which make the machine smaller, and which allows them also to be able to disassemble and repair it faster than the conventional tokamaks, because the magnets come apart in a different way, and the exhaust system that they've designed is more efficient. So that may help with uh, some of the materials problems of the conventional tokamak. So it does look like a much improved tokamak, and they're uh, getting money, and they're trying. You know, they've got a facility that they're that they've committed to in uh, Massachusetts, and they're trying to build one-step uh, physics demonstration followed by a electricity generator. Mm-hmm. And so I I have great hopes for them if they can get money. They're privately funded now. They're not getting hardly any government money at all. I think the government's helping them a little bit with some support work at the labs, but uh, basically it's a, a private sector venture, and I think uh, they're one of the most promising. 
And there's another variation of the tokamak called the spherical torus or spherical tokamak. The British are going gangbusters on that. They've got one in operation. They've got a company that's uh, also built one, and they've got a site for building the next step one, which they a site where they hope to build the actual power electricity generator. So that variation of the tokamak is also looking very promising, and it's, the British are way out in front on that, although that idea first came about and Princeton has actually had built one of those uh, and has another one coming in operation in a couple of years that would support that line. So there's a couple of variations along the tokamak line that are looking looking very good. All the other things that you hear about, they are at a somewhat earlier stage of development. They're all doing good work. TAE, a Tri-Alpha Energy, or TAE in California is probably the most radical of, of them all, but they are the farthest along of these alternates, and they've all they've had success along the way. They've built two or three generations of machine, and they're all trying to get money for a, a really major step that would really demonstrate most everything they want to demonstrate before going on to a, a real power-producing machine. So, you know, I think uh, I, I have hopes for them, too. Excellent. And uh, there's another company in Canada called General Fusion that perhaps is a little bit farther behind, but they're working with the British and uh, too. And so it's a promising area, and you know I hope I have hope that that'll that'll evolve. This actually um, made me think of a question, which is sort of now all of, as as you alluded to, all the fusion development is being done by these sort of separate private companies, which sort of stands in contrast to the the fusion plan, which sort of implicitly is that everything is being at least managed from a, a central, like a central management team. Do you think that, what, what do you think about those two sort of different approaches towards getting to a technology of like sort of the, the let a thousand flowers bloom in, in private companies versus a, a much broader program. Well, I think in the last maybe five years or so, times have changed in that regard. You know, in the 70s and up until very recently, it was only the governments that seemed to be able to afford to do this because of the time scale and the cost. Mm-hmm. And so if fusion was to come to pass, the government had to step up or the international governments had to step up and work together. And it was, seemed like the only way to get there was for the government to do it because of the cost. Now, it seems uh, that things have come along far enough, especially in the tokamak area, that some private companies are coming up with what they think are ways to fund what they want to do to demonstrate what they need to demonstrate because their ideas uh, are, at the moment at least, on relatively inexpensive facilities. Now, yeah. they're, they, they, they are going to run up against the funding problem if they're successful in the near term. You know, they're getting hundreds of millions of dollars, some of them, from private investors, and they're building some things, and hopefully they'll be successful. But these will not be power plants. And so they will have to be so successful that they will be able to get much, much larger amounts of money. They may have to be bought out by a Westinghouse <laughs> or something uh, in order to, to become real power plant manufacturers. 
These are not industries yet, even though they have an industry, what they call an industry association. They're small companies. They may be big by some companies' standards, but they are not really money-making companies, and they don't have their own money. So they have to continue to to get money from investors, and and even maybe getting a hundred million dollars or two hundred million dollars from some billionaire's venture capital company is doable these days. Mm-hmm. Getting a billion for the next step is a much different problem because. There isn't going to be a real fusion demonstration plant built for less than a couple billion dollars. And private money doesn't come that easily at that at that unless the thing that's being built is going to make money back fast. Stephen Dean, thanks for being part of Idea Machines. Thanks for listening. We're always looking to improve, so we love feedback and suggestions. You can get in touch on Twitter at Ben underscore Reinhardt. If you found this podcast intriguing, don't forget to share and discuss it with your friends. Thank you.